Uh, we've been looking the last several weeks at the book of Colossians, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to a church that he never, he never met, uh, just some believers that he was trying to encourage. And in Colossians chapter 1, part of that letter, he launches into this poem. This poem that is kind of lost to us in translation, the rhythm and the rhyme don't really make it into English, but we know that in the original language it was poetry. The theme was the power and authority, the supremacy of Jesus. The first half of the poem, Paul talks a little bit about uh, Jesus' power and authority over the powers of this world. He references unseen kind of spiritual authorities, but he really emphasizes for the most part human authorities. He says any power, any authority, any strength you've ever known pales in comparison to that of Jesus. In the second half of the poem that we looked at last week, he zeroes it in more specifically for those who call themselves Christians. He says that means that Jesus is central to everything in the church. We sing it this way sometimes, Jesus at the center of it all. Paul kind of really expands on that theme, talking about the power, the authority, the centrality of Jesus in the church. The idea is that followers of Jesus have access to a power and to an authority that exceeds anything the world has to offer. So the question arises, and this is kind of where we're going to go today as Paul gets out of this poem. The question is, who does this pertain to? Who does this pertain to? So with that in mind, I want to begin reading to you the portion of scripture we're going to talk about today. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Who does this pertain to? Paul says this. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I was driving in my car this week. I heard a commercial come on on the radio, I was listening, yeah, I'm the guy who still listens to terrestrial radio. I heard a commercial come on for an airline and the nature of the commercial was this. They were saying, in these uncertain days, we know, we recognize, we see that people unexpectedly have to change plans from time to time. So if you're planning to travel, travel using our airline because we will never charge you a change fee. If your plans change and you have to get a different flight or go a different place or fly at a different time, we're not going to charge you a fee to make those changes in your plans. The commercial went on for 30 seconds or whatever it was talking about how great this is that we never charge change fees and you can always change your plans with us. You never have to worry about it. And then in the last two or three seconds of the commercial, you guys have all heard it, the the really fast voice that gets on and reads the legal disclaimer, right? And you know what he said? He said the no change fees policy applies only to frequent flyers with their airline. 
It does not apply to economy seats, and some blackout dates may apply. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> 28 seconds worth of never have to worry, always can change your plans, never charge a fee. And then there's, I think they call it the Z copy, the Z copy that says, well, actually that only pertains to if you're a frequent flyer. It doesn't pertain if you're flying economy. So it's really only frequent flyers who are flying first class or economy plus or whatever they call it on their particular airline. And also if we decide that that's not a convenient time for us, we're not gonna let you do it anyhow. <laughs> so do the math there. I mean, really almost everybody is paying change fees, aren't they? <laughs> almost everybody who flies that airline is paying a change fee, even though the commercial says nobody has to pay a change fee, except for almost everyone. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm cynical, right? So I laughed, but you guys aren't surprised. None of us are surprised because we're used to that. We are used to hearing good news and then finding out that the good news only applies to some people in some circumstances. But that's not the kind of good news that Paul talks about. That's not the kind of good news we come to know in the scripture. That's not the good news of the Bible. The good news of the Bible, and Paul puts it here, is this. Jesus gives all access. All access. Do you ever have a pass? Maybe you went to a concert or something. All access. You can go anywhere you want. You can get done anything you want to do. Everything that's there is available to you because you have all access. Paul says the good news of scripture is that Jesus gives all access. Once you're in, you're in. No questions asked. There are no blackout dates. There are no legal disclaimers to worry about. There are no exceptions. There are no caveats. There are no exclusions. Jesus gives all access. The poem we read over the last two weeks celebrated the power and the authority that Jesus has. That's power and authority that he leverages in favor of his people. That's all of his people. All of his people have access to all of his power. Do we hear that? All of his people have access to all of his power. I've told you before that when I was working on my, my seminary degree, one of my requirements was to do a, a rotation as a student chaplain over at Edward Hospital. And so for the period of time that I was involved in that, I, I was scheduled, I, I worked with the other chaplains, I worked alone. Uh, I was essentially an adjunct member of, of the hospital staff there. And so after going through training and, and orientation, I got myself a hospital ID badge. It was pretty cool. I had a very unflattering photograph of myself on it. It's at Edward Hospital and I hung it right here on my pocket. I would wear I know you guys are about to be surprised. I had to wear a tie every day I was there. I mean, it was, it was really highly anointed. Um, and so I would hang it right here on, on, my, on my shirt pocket. Um, it wasn't just an ID badge. You've been to the hospital. You know that there are hallways and there are areas that are restricted. Authorized personnel only. And those doors are locked. Most people can't go through those doors. But when I went to those doors, if I took my ID badge, it was on one of those cool stretchy lanyards. I could hold it up by the, our nurses here are laughing, right? I could hold it up by the lock to the door and boom, and the door, and I would walk right through restricted access. 
right? But Chaplain Martinson can go right through there. Everybody step aside. The chaplain is here. I have the ID back. You need to get in that door. I'm going to do that. It was pretty cool. As you can see, I'm still pretty uh, impressed with myself. <laughs> that badge opened doors that were off limits to most other people. But here, here's what I want to tell you about this. When I first got that badge, my first few shifts, I felt really weird using it. It was really kind of awkward. There's all these signs, do not enter, restricted access, authorized personnel. There's elevators that, you know, regular people can't use, only staff can use. But I was always scared to use it because everybody else who was going through those doors, everybody else who was using those elevators, for the most part, these were doctors and nurses. They were wearing lab coats, they were wearing scrubs. I didn't look like they looked, right? And I wasn't used to going in those places. I'd been to the hospital before, but I'd only ever gone through the lobby and walked in the hallways they told me to walk in. Now, all of a sudden they're saying you can go anywhere, but I'm like, I'm not so sure I can. I don't look like anybody else that's going through here. I don't feel like I belong. Also, that place is huge and it's like a maze. And half the time I had no idea where I was. And so I think I'll go over here now. Maybe if I walk in circles long enough, I'll finally figure out where I'm going. Have you ever felt that way? I kept expecting that I was gonna go through a door and somebody was gonna call security and say, get this guy out of here, he doesn't belong here. Right? I kept expecting that I was going to go somewhere, walk into a room, and they were going to say, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. It just didn't feel right. Over time, though, I did one shift after another, and I eventually got used to it, and I got to a point where I finally felt like I belonged. I finally felt like I belonged in that place. And I think part of what Paul is telling us here is that the process of growing up in the faith means eventually we need to become comfortable in showing our Jesus badge and just confidently walking into the places that God says we belong, confidently walking through all the hallways in God's kingdom. We have all access. And there's no need to stand at the door waiting, as I sometimes did, for somebody who looks like they belong to swipe their badge and just following them through. There's no reason to worry that maybe I shouldn't go where God has said I should go. There's no need to be scared to look over our shoulders expecting Jesus to throw us out. It's not going to happen. Jesus gives us all access. But in order to live that all access life in Jesus, there are a couple of things that we need to be clear on. And the first is this. When you're living an all-access life in Jesus, your past can no longer keep you away from God. Somebody, somebody who's been redeemed needs to say amen right now. Your past can no longer keep you away from God. There are many phrases that we use to describe the Christian life. Sometimes we say we're, we're saved. Sometimes when we say born again, I just said the redeemed, you know, old school in Pentecostal circles, we would say the company of the redeemed. You know, that was us, right? Whatever your favorite phrase is, Paul, the apostle Paul, he actually has a favorite phrase. He would refer to people being in Christ. Read through the letters of the New Testament. He uses that phrase a lot to describe Christianity. Once you're in Christ. And what he's saying here is once you're in Christ, it no longer matters who you used to be. You aren't that person anymore. Now you're in Christ. 
And there aren't multiple levels of being in Christ. There aren't varying degrees of being in Christ. Paul says, in Christ is in Christ. That's all there is to it. I was reminded this week of an old episode of of the show Seinfeld. You can pray with me if you don't feel good about your pastor having watched a lot of Seinfeld episodes through the years. But I remember a particular episode of Seinfeld in which the Elaine character was applying for a job. And the interview wasn't going very well. And so the interviewer asked her, he said, do you feel like, like you have grace? Do you have the quality of grace? And in her classic kind of awkward way, Elaine says, well, I'd like to think I have some grace. And the interviewer says, oh, no, 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 no. You can't have some grace. You either have grace or you don't have grace. And frustrated, Elaine says, all right, I don't have grace. I don't want grace. I don't need grace. I don't even say grace. And she stands up and she walks out and, of course, doesn't get the job. Now, I'm inclined not to agree with the interviewer. I feel like I've known some people who are a little more graceful than, than some other people. But as it applies to the grace that Jesus gives us, as it applies to God's grace that we know in Christ... I actually think the interviewer was right. There aren't varying degrees of the grace of God. You either know the grace of God or you don't. It's either on or it's off. In Christ is in Christ. If you know grace, then you know grace. That's all there is to it. And to the people who might think that they're only entitled to a a little grace... Paul says this in verse 21. He says, this includes even you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. You were separated from him by what? By your evil thoughts and actions. This is the picture that that, that Paul is painting for us of what this looks like. And it's stronger than just saying lost people. This picture is stronger than just saying lost people. This isn't the portrait of of a seeker, a decent person who just, you know, needs to find Jesus. This is the picture of an evil person, of a godless person. And Paul's saying this, this Jesus power, this Jesus authority that I've been writing about, this includes you. You are included in the all-access status that we know in Christ. And I believe this is a very, very deeply personal issue for Paul. Because before he was in Christ, he was an enemy of Jesus. In the most literal sense, he, he hunted down Christians for a living. That's what he did. It consumed his thoughts and his actions. And I wonder today how many of us can identify with that. Hopefully not the part about hunting down Christians, but but the part about our thoughts and our actions being filled with something other than the gospel message. About everything we do and everything we think being, being involved with something other than Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that's who you used to be. Boy, in this world, how many things do we have to fill our thoughts and our actions? But I think for us in this culture, money's got to be at the top of that list, right? Everything we do, everything we, we think about is how can I get more money? But there's other things. Entertainment. We are bent on just how do I have the next best time? 
relationships. What relationship can I get myself into that, that, that's going to fulfill me? Uh, authority, right? Oh, when we don't know the authority of Christ, I think sometimes we're obsessed on getting more authority for ourselves. Power, things like that. Maybe our career. There's all sorts of things like this that tend to fill our thoughts and our actions. But that cannot be true of someone who is growing up in Christ. In another letter to another church, Paul would write these words. He'd say, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, catch this, think about those things. And he'd go on a line later to say, and then put it into practice. Think about those things and put it into practice. Thoughts and actions. The challenge, of course, is that every Christian remembers what it was like to live a life when our thoughts and our actions were contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And for some of us, that reality, that remembrance can be crippling because we still feel the shame and the guilt of our former selves. Maybe you'll remember the story from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? You remember the story of Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden and everything is perfect and everything is pure and everything is godly and everything is wonderful. And then together they make the decision to rebel against God's rule and authority and they sin. And literally the very next line, what's the first thing they did? They, they put their clothes on. <laughs> yeah, they hid. <laughs> but they were here hiding some stuff, right? They put their clothes on. The very first thing they did, first sin and second shame. First sin and second, we got to cover ourselves. We got to cover up. Suddenly they felt shame. That's how it works. First sin and then shame, that's the power of shame. And that is Satan's tool. He is always ready to remind you of what already happened. He is already, always ready to remind you of who you used to be. He is always ready to bring up your past and to try and convince you that your past will keep you away from God. That's what Satan says. But what does God say? He says it in verse 22. He says, you are holy and blameless without a single fault. Wow. Now, who's the you here? Do you remember? Have you been following along with me? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to the church lady in the back row who's been back there praying for 95 years? No, 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 no. With all due respect to the church lady in the back row, Rosalie, I'm looking in your direction. <laughs> Right? Of course Rosalie is included in this. We love Rosalie. She comes to prayer all the time. She's as faithful as the day is long. We all know Rosalie's going to heaven. We all know Rosalie has all access to all the power and authority of Jesus, right? We all know Rosalie is firmly planted in the kingdom, but that's not who Paul's talking to. He's saying it's you who we know what you used to be up to. You who were once enemies of Christ. You are holy and blameless and without 
a single fault. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. When you're reconciled to God, your past level of righteousness is irrelevant. Good or bad, it's irrelevant because when you're reconciled to God, you have taken on the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus only has one level of righteousness. It's holy, blameless, and faultless. That's all Jesus has for you. He doesn't have different levels of righteousness for different folks. There's only one way of describing the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what you have taken on when you're reconciled to God. And so when God looks at you, that's what he sees. Holy, blameless, and without fault. Sometimes when I'm working in my office during the week, if I've been sitting at my desk for a long time, I'll get up and, and walk around in the gym. I find it's uh, you know, good for my, my mind at the very least, and I'm hoping it's good for my body as well to just get off that chair, get away from the computer, and, and maybe walk a few laps in the gym. Sometimes if I have a phone call that I know is going to take 10 or 15 minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up on my cell phone and I'll go walk in the gym while I talk on the phone. I've talked with some of you guys while I've been walking laps in the gym. I hope you'll forgive me for that and not feel too offended. But it's just a good thing to get up and move a few times during the day. I have noticed that Pastor Garrett has a similar habit. He doesn't walk laps in the gym. He's a bit more athletic and fit than I am. Garrett, when he's in the middle of a long day, will get up and he'll grab a basketball and he'll shoot hoops for a little while. And so I've gone into the gym, I've gone through the gym, maybe I got a question for Garrett or I need to grab something and I find him in there shooting hoops. Here's what I've noticed about Garrett. As he shoots a basket, uh, if he misses, he chases down his own rebound. And I've seen him do it. And here's what I've noticed about our pastor Garrett. He's faster than me. <laughs> He's fast, he can run faster than I can run. We've never had a race. But we're not gonna, because I can tell just by looking that Garrett can run faster than I can run. I see him shoot the ball on the rare occasion that he misses. See, I'm trying to be nice to you, Garrett. On the rare occasion that he misses, he goes running after the rebound and he can run faster than I can run. I'm told, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, there are essentially two very different kinds of running. It's really two different sports. There's, there's sprinting, and then there's distance running. And these are, to me, it all sounds awful, but these are essentially two very different kinds of sports. I think that if Garrett and I lined up to do a 100-meter dash, I think he would destroy me. And I think that if Garrett and I lined up to do a 10K distance run, the run would destroy me. Okay, he would finish, I would not. But in both cases, he would beat me because he's faster than I am. We all got it? Here's the other thing I know about Garrett. Garrett and I have traveled together uh, a handful of times. We've flown to Haiti together a few times. A couple years ago, we flew to Dallas together. He came home with a girlfriend, I came home with a virus. <laughs> And then last year, uh, we flew to Minneapolis together. There was a conference up in, in Minneapolis. We flew there together. Um, you would think, knowing that he's so much faster than I am, that he would get to Minneapolis before I got there, right? It only makes sense because he's so much, if he's that much faster than me in the gym, 
By the time you get from Chicago to Minneapolis, you would think he would be there way ahead of me, but he's not. I can report to you in all truthfulness that in every one of those trips, Garrett and I have arrived at the same time. You say, how could this be? This must be a miracle. Dan, we can see how slow you are. You must be slow. Garrett must beat you to Minneapolis. He must beat you to Dallas. No, 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 no. We have arrived every one of those trips at the same time. And you know why? Because once we're on that plane, we are no longer relying on our own ability to move. Garrett and I may have come to that plane with different abilities, but once we're on it, he and I have the same access to the same power of the same jets. And so we end up in the same place at the same time. I tell you that long, ridiculous story to say this. It works the same way with Christ. In Christ, it doesn't matter how you got there. Once you're there, we all have the same access to the same power of the same Savior. And that means your past can no longer keep you away from God. I said there were two things, and so I'm going to tell you the second. Your past can no longer keep you away from God but your present can. And I kind of wanted to get like a a sound effect of a record screeching right here. (laughs) Your past can no longer keep you away from God, but your present can. (laughs) You know? Let me tell you what I mean. Because I'm sure already you're thinking, now wait a minute, Pastor. I thought nothing could separate us from the love of God. I remember being a little boy, we used to sing a song in church that was, that was the only lyric. We was, none can ever separate us from the love of God, from the love of God in Christ our Lord. And that's all there was to the song. So we would change the key and sing it again. Am I right, Don? None can ever separate us from the love of God, love of God. And then we would change the key. None can ever separate us. And we just kept going up and up and up. And we would sing it over and over and over. None can ever separate us from the love of God. Some of you will remember Romans chapter 8, verse 38, where Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let's be honest, folks, that sounds pretty clear, pretty definitive, pretty straightforward, and I believe it is. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Here's what that means. Nothing you can do will ever make him stop loving you. But let's go back to what Paul was actually talking about when he was telling the, when he was talking to the Colossians, when he was writing to the Colossians. I'm reviewing here. He said, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But in verse 23, he says this, but you must continue, but you must continue. The word he uses there in the Greek is actually the word if. You're holy and blameless and without fault if, I don't even know what he said yet, but that's a pretty important if, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? If you continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. And then in verse 23, and here's what I've highlighted in your outline. So don't 
drift away from the assurance. You say, what assurance? He says, the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Don't drift away from the assurance that you received when you heard the gospel. You might be tempted to believe, and you might think that you just heard me say, so I'm going to repeat this and be very clear here. You might think that the health and the strength of your relationship with God is based on how good of a job you've been doing lately. Right? Like, uh, behave yourself and you'll have a strong relationship with God. Screw up often enough and God will distance himself from you. But that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, Nothing separates him us from his love, right? Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And your sin, past or present, no longer has the power, no longer has the authority to dictate your spiritual health. But Paul is showing us that there is a danger if we fail to engage in the ongoing process of growing up in our faith. You know what we tend to call this in the church? We call it discipleship, growing up. And he's saying there is a danger if you come to faith and then fail to engage in that process. Todd and Shonda were telling us about people who have given their lives to the Lord in recent weeks. Great news. We celebrate that news as the Lord celebrates, right? But they know, as a matter of fact, the heartbeat of their ministry is it's not one and done, right? You can't check that one off the box and say, the Lord bless you and move on to something else. No, now the fun begins, am I right? Now it's about discipleship. Now it's about engaging in that process of growing up. And Paul is saying, if you're not doing that right now, you run the risk of drifting away. And all that power and all that access and all that authority and all that benefit that drew you to Christ in the first place, you wake up one day and realize that it is all drifted away. What's that all about? He says you have to, you must stand firmly in our belief just as we did when we first came to Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we stand firmly in our belief? I came up with three things. I'm going to tell them to you pretty quickly. I think these are three important things to stand firmly in your faith. I think, first of all, we need to surround ourselves with other all-access believers. Environment matters for growth, doesn't it? Environment matters. I remember uh, a summer ago, my family, we were out in Rocky Mountain National Park. We, we rode horses one day through the park, and, and the guide that was riding her horse with the four of us pointed out a grove of aspen trees. They're beautiful. White bark. They look like birch, but they grow up in these clusters, in these, these little groves. And she said, those look like they're 15 or 20 different trees, don't they? And they, they surely do. She said, but they're they're actually just one organism. That's just one tree because they share a common root. They sprout up in different places, but deep beneath the soil, they're all connected to one source. And so the unique thing about that particular type of tree is that if one of them is harmed, they all feel it, they all suffer. But as they grow, as they stay connected to the common root source, they all grow up together. You don't see some doing good and some do, they all grow up together. I thought that's a portrait of the body of Christ, 
isn't it? We all stay connected to the same root source so that as we grow, we share in one another's victories. We share in one another's strength. I'm not feeling it today, but I'm leaning on my brothers and sisters in faith and together we are growing up. Environment matters. You want to stand firm in your faith. You need to make sure that you are regularly placing yourself in a grove of aspen trees. Right? And can I be frank? Can I be blunt here? This is one of the reasons that church attendance is so important. We are seeing an epidemic in the last two years across this country and around the world of believers who felt like, eh, church in pajamas ain't so bad. Right? I can log on. I can listen to the message. I can hear the worship. I can engage remotely. And it's good enough for me. And what we're seeing now beginning to take place is, uh uh-uh, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough because environment matters. Environment matters. And you need to be surrounded by people who are committed to standing firm in their faith. For most of us, it's not happening during the week at work, is it? For most of us, that might not even be happening in our homes. It's not happening in our neighborhood. Where is it happening? It's happening right here. It's happening right here. Church, I need you. I need you. I need you especially when I'm not feeling it. And do you know that on some Saturday, I'm sorry, on some Sundays, your pastor shows up and he's not feeling it, right? That's why I need you. And you need each other. Surrounding ourselves with other all-access believers. The second thing is just committing to growing deeper. None of us can determine exactly how much fruit we're going to bear. That's not my responsibility. But we can determine to grow more deeply. And trees with deep roots stay planted when the winds blow strong. Right? When the winds of change blow, it's the tree with deep roots that's going to stay planted. That's what Paul said, stay firmly planted. So I'm going to focus on my relationship. I'm going to focus on that root structure. I'm going to dig in deep so that when the wind blows, I'm not the one drifting away. Here's a third thing I can do to stay firm in my belief. I'm going to lean on routine. Look, it might not sound exciting, but I am going to lean on routine especially when I'm not feeling it, okay? The Bible never tells you to smile all the time. Did you know that? Bible never says, barely, barely, I say to you, wipe that frown upside down, right? The Bible doesn't say you're gonna feel it every day. It never tells you that you have to be excited when you go to pray. It never tells you that you have to be excited when you go to read your Bible. It doesn't say you have to be excited at you know, 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings when it's time to go to church. It just shows us to lean into those routines and others like them, no matter what, because they will sustain you when you don't feel it, when you're not feeling it. It's okay. Are we clear on this? It's okay to show up here on Sunday morning angry with God. It's okay to show up here on Sunday morning feeling a little bit lost. It's okay to show up on Sunday morning feeling a bit shaken. It's not just okay, it's necessary. It's necessary, we lean into the routines in times like that. Because those are the kinds of things that are gonna sustain us when we're not feeling it and they're gonna protect us from drift in our belief. 
and bring you back to the hospital. Remember my pass? The last image I gave to you was kind of the picture of me in those first couple weeks. I've got the pass, I know it works, it gives me all access, but I'm feeling a little sheepish about using it because I'm still feeling like I don't belong. And so I'm a little scared to just swipe it and go through the doors. I'm a little scared. They would call me uh, to certain cases, you know, when there was a trauma or when there was a code, the call would go out for the chaplain on duty and I'd have to respond. So there were times in that role where I'm walking into rooms in the ER or in the ICU where the medical staff is doing all sorts of crazy stuff, right? All sorts of crazy stuff that you typically don't see if you're just a, a visitor at the hospital and here and the doors are opening and they're pumping chests and they're, you know, changing out this and, and organs are going around in, in containers. I mean, it's crazy. And I'm like, I just love Jesus. I don't know why I'm here. Right? I didn't feel like I belonged. And so I felt a little sheepish about using, using my all-access pass to get into the places they wanted me to be. Let me give you a different picture. Imagine me knowing where I belong in the hospital. Knowing, yeah, this is my job. This is where I'm supposed to go. But there I am sitting in the lobby. Sitting in the waiting area, neglecting to use my badge, not because I think it's not going to work, not because I think I don't belong, but just because I don't really care about it anymore. People that need my help are in those back rooms and, and, and they're in the treatment rooms and they're hurting. And I'm just sitting in the lobby because I feel like I'm here. Good enough, right? I'm here. I'm in the right spot. I'm in the right building. I'm here. I got here. I'm good. That's what it looks like when Christians drift away from the assurance of the gospel. They're in the right building, but they're failing to access all that needs to be accessed in order to do what God has called them to do. It's their present, not their past. It's their present that's keeping them away from living the life that God wants for them. Here's what all of this means. I think it's a word for the church today. I think there are two big lies that too many Christians are believing. And the two lies are kind of mirror images of each other, but they have the same result. On one hand, we have too many Christians who have entered into life in Christ. They've been handed their all access pass, but they're like me in the hospital. They're feeling like, I just, I really don't feel like I belong here. And in reality, what that means is they show up to church and they, they see the seasoned saints. They see the sanctified believers. They see the folks that they look up to spiritually and they go, well, that's obviously not me. Because I have this whole past and it's weighing me down. And they refuse to take out the past. They give them all access to the kingdom and the power and the authority of Jesus and swipe it at the door and walk in the hallways they were ordained to walk in. Because they're hearing the whisper of the enemy saying, that's not you. That's not you. I know who you were. That's not you. They believe that their past somehow disqualifies them from a fully-fledged relationship with God. And they find themselves, sure, in the kingdom, but guilt and shame keeps them away, keeps them from going where they're supposed to go. That's one image. 
And then on the other hand, there's this whole other lie. I think we have too many Christians who fall into this category. Believers who don't realize that their present is actually the thing keeping them away from all that God has for them. Oh, I've been saved. I've been redeemed. My past is wiped away, washed away by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So I'm just going to chill because it's all good, right? And so there they are in this metaphorical hospital sitting in the lobby and there's work to be done. There's access to be had to the power and to the authority of God. And they're like, but I'm good. I got here, so I'm good. Nothing else is required. They don't realize that they hold in their hands an all-access pass that will get them anywhere and everywhere in the kingdom. So there they sit, and they wait, while the work of the kingdom goes on without them. Two very, very different lies applied to two very, very different kinds of people, but with the same result. Folks, the kingdom of God, the power and the authority of Jesus, this is for you. Is that not what Paul has just said? This is for you. And so when the pastor stands up at the prayer time and worship team is going and we start talking about healing people, we start talking about death and life, and we start talking about reconciliation, we start talking about miracles. Are we in a space where we're saying, let's see what they do? Huh? Or are we in a place where we say, thank you, Lord. That's for me. That's for me. Thank you, God, that that's the life that you have called me to. Thank you, God, that when you saved me, you said over this one, in Christ, is in Christ. Thank you, God, that I hopped on the jet plane of the kingdom this morning, and I'm going to arrive in the same place at the same time as all of my brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter that I can't run from here to there, because we aren't going on my power anymore. Thank you, God, that in Christ just means in Christ and it's all access. I want to pray with you as we conclude today. I'm going to ask you to just kind of close your eyes and think on whichever one of those pictures resonated with you today. I I painted a few different pictures today. Sitting in a hospital lobby, using your pass at the door, hopping on a jet plane with gear. Going here, going there, whatever it is, think about one of those images. Maybe you find yourself in one of those pictures. And as we get, begin to pray, I'm going to talk to the Lord, but I, I want to talk to you as well because I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in this moment. God, we are grateful that all access means all access. We are grateful that all of the people of Jesus are privy to all of his power all of the time. And we don't have to read the legal disclaimer. We don't have to go to the fine print. We don't have to wait for any of those Z copy to be read. It just means all. It just means all. And in this room, Lord, you will find a collection of your people. You will find the saved. You will find the born again. You will find the company of the redeemed because we are in Christ. And so, Lord, if it's my voice today that on your behalf extends the the invitation, I would invite 
your people today to recognize that in Christ we hold a past that gives us all access to the kingdom of God. To recognize that there is not a graduated level of just how good of a Christian you can be. But once we're here, we're here and it is time to start doing. It is time to start living. It is time to start being these discipled people that you called us to. I remember reading about it, Lord. You called Peter. He didn't know one solitary thing about the gospel. But he started following and the miracles happened. Oh, they happened. They happened again, and they happened again because he refused to drift away. He refused to drift away. He didn't get it right every minute. He didn't get it perfect every time, but he refused to drift away. We want to be like Peter. We want to be like John. We want to be like Paul. We want to be those kinds of people that say, God, there might not be too much we get, but we get this. When you said all access, you meant all access. And so church, I'd invite you to do this. If you feel like your past has been laying, <laughs> weighing you down too long, if you feel like too often you've been the one hearing those whispers of the enemy saying, yeah, that's good enough for somebody else, but it's just not going to work for you because we both know where you've been. I invite you to just lift up your hands right now, just like we did at the beginning of this service, and receive what God has for you. And if maybe you identify, maybe it's as well, maybe it's or, maybe it's and, I don't know. But if you identify with that second category that says, no, I, I always knew I was saved, but I kind of felt like that was it. I kind of felt like, okay, I'm in, so I'm just going to kind of chill and wait for the trumpet to blow, and then we'll be good here. I'd invite you to raise your hands as well, because God has something to pour into your life today. He's going to say to you, hey you got a palace in your hand. I want you to walk over to that door and open it because I have something for you that you have not dared to dream about before. There is an expanse to the power in this kingdom and it's time for you to start living into it. Church, would you just receive that today? Father, those are the words that we hear. That's the work that you're doing in the hearts and the lives of the people here. And that's why we can be so bold and audacious when we talk about miracles, when we talk about expectation, when we talk about presence and when we talk about power, we are yours. All of us belong to you. Seal it on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.